before I get started, I, I want to say a few things to all of the parents, which is all of you. Um, and I, I, I want to make sure that you understand what's going to happen this morning is really directed not so much at your children, but it's directed at you and me as parents. That dads, um, you need to be an example to your sons of everything we're going to talk about this morning. Um, and equally, you know, the, some, I heard some people say, I don't need to go to this session because I only have daughters. And that's probably true, um, I suppose. But dads, everything we're going to talk about this morning is very, very important to be modeled in front of your daughters. Because you may, if, you, if you have all girls like I did, your task is to raise godly women, God willing, but also to help them recognize what a godly man looks like. Because I marry a godly man someday. So we're talking today about producing godly men from your home, um, but also making your daughters aware of what a godly man looks like. Ladies, this is directed at you also, for the moms in the room. um, Do your children know that you value your husband and that you honor his role um, in your home? And I recognize this could be very difficult. And by the way, I see people fanning themselves. If someone could check the air conditioning uh, and and see if it's on. If you're already warm, it's not going to get any better. So we probably ought to get some air conditioning going. Um, And there's a lot of people in here. Um, But I know some of you come from single-parent homes. You are a single parent. Um, This is still an important point, an important issue um, the, even regardless of the marital status, the, the mom and the dad are reinforcing the roles that are being played by the other parent, even if it's not in perfection and even if it's in a difficult um, um, environment. And uh, some of uh, we can talk about that later. I know that there's – I'm thinking of, of that as I go through this today. The, the bottom line is mom and dad, if you can agree on the goals for your sons – um, then that makes the day-to-day parenting um, a lot more clear. And if you agree on the importance of attaining the goal, um, it makes the evaluation of current issues and challenges in your parenting a whole lot easier. And that's the point here today. We're going to focus today on what you want to produce from your home. And that, that goal is going to be informed by the Bible, not tradition, not how you were raised, not what I, how, how I think it ought to be, none of that. What I want to do is take us through Scripture and establish for us what the Bible lays out um, his design for a man is. Because if you understand what that design is, hopefully it's an easy agreement at that point that that's what we want to produce from our home. Okay? So with all of that as introduction... Let's talk a little bit about the culture you're raising your kids in, and I'm, I know I'm preaching to the choir on this, but our culture has manufactured confusion on just about everything it can. And this isn't by happenstance. If you can create confusion and then step in and provide the solution, you are buying the uh, um, fidelity and the appreciation and the respect of the people who you confuse in the first place. And that's what's going on right now, very quickly. One of the most remarkable achievements of our generating confusion about one of the most basic facts in life, gender. 
and I know you know this, but your son will be told, I think the latest number is, that there are over 100 genders. Okay? Your sons will be told to avoid toxic masculinity. What is toxic masculinity? I have no idea, because remember, the goal is to create confusion. I would challenge you to go find out what is the definition of toxic masculinity, although everyone's talking about it. And if you're not aware of that, your son will be told that his masculinity is toxic. And probably, I did some research on this. I think my summary of what I found is that toxic masculinity is the harmful effects of traditional male role. What does traditional mean? Biblical. There's an all-out assault on your son. Your son will be told that if he wants to, he can become a woman. And why wouldn't he want to do that since nobody wants to be a toxic masculine? Okay? And I know that sounds extreme. It used to be extraordinarily extreme. That's life right now. If your kids are going to school, they are going to be told that. Truth is, I believe most of you would articulate starts and ends with the revealed word of God. None of the confusion about gender or male roles is actually real. There is no confusion in the Bible. Our creator designed male and female. Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. doesn't get much more clear than that. Anybody confused by that? You know, when the history books are written about this culture, I think it's going to be with a lot of ha-ha-ha-has. We've gone crazy. But that craziness is deadly serious because your sons are going to be um, driving into a headwind. God chooses. His divine will and purpose for each human being is expressed initially at creation. And when your son was born, it was not a mistake. It was not a 50-50 chance flip of the coin. It might have been for you, right? Is it going to be a boy or a girl? Who knows? God knows. Okay? And it's by his perfect design, his choice, his creation. And that decision of God has enormous implications on your son and on you. Because your son is a boy, there are clear implications for him and demands placed on him by his creator. And they are different than the demands that are placed on your daughter by her creator. That's next week. One of the most devastating and deceptively subtle attacks on the design of God for your sons is that marriage is optional. This is a controversial statement, even in the church. Marriage has been widely and soundly rejected. Part of the deception of Satan is fooling our culture and many within the church into thinking that marriage is a choice. That is pride. That is putting ourselves, and I'm going to show you this from the Bible, but that is putting ourselves in the position of judge God's creation and his perfect design. So, of course, why wouldn't this world do that? God called his creation and design good. He called it perfect. 
God's design and will is not optional. With rare exception, and there are exceptions, but they are rare, according to Scripture. With rare exception, marriage is not the choice. Who you marry might be the choice. When you get married might be the choice. Whether you get married should not be a choice that you teach your son. God's creative design is not up for our acquiescence. It's not up for our approval. It's not a democracy. We don't get to endorse it or not endorse it, ratify it or not. His design, his vision, and the purposes behind his creation is our very guidepost as parents. If you could, turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to be in Genesis here for a little bit. And I'm going to move pretty quick because time is short. Time is always short. But I want you to see back in, the, uh, in creation that the fact that you have a son is amazing. It's wonderful. It's by God's design. And it's by God's perfect design. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, and this is the only time you will ever hear a statement that there was something not good about God's creation. And you know what it is. It is not good for what? Man to be alone. We could stop there and spend the next hour. And all the men would say what? Only one? I'm going to give you guys another shot. All the men would say? Amen. Yeah, amen. It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. That term helper, we're going to talk about this in a little more depth next week. That is the same concept. God talked about the woman using the same word. He talks about his Holy Spirit. It's the same word used to describe God. I'm going to make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. How many of you learned that story in Sunday school? Adam naming all the animals? Did you know the context? The context is God makes a decision that is not good for man to be alone. So he creates and he parades them all in front of Adam. And why does he do that? Because he wants Adam to know he, it is not good for him to be alone. Adam is seeing two animals, like kinds, going in front of him, and he's probably looking around going, where's mine? Right? It's exactly the point of this story. Verse 20, the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. Was that uh, a discovery of God's? No, that was a discovery of who? Adam. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, and he slept, and then he took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man, and the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of mine shall be called woman because she was taken out of man for this reason, for this reason. Not a, a woman leaves her mother and father to marry a man. This is misquoted all the time. This is significant. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Man was incomplete. 
by God's perfect design. This was not an oops. This was not a design flaw that God figured out after he was done creating man. He designed it this way. In his perfect, loving majesty, he designed man to be incomplete. And for this reason, a man leaves his father and mother. What's the reason? Man needs help. Amen? Amen. Yeah, there we go. You're with me now. (laughs) Adam arrived with a hole, a built-in hole by design to be a woman. So God created the woman. The man was told to leave his parents. And just so you know, this isn't a story just about Adam. Did Adam have parents? Think about this. Did Adam have parents? So why did he say, leave your father and mother? Because this applies to all of us, mankind. We have fathers and mothers. This was not just a story for Adam. This was setting the course of creation from the very beginning that a man would leave his father and mother. You see, parents don't complete a man. Roommates don't complete a man. A successful career doesn't complete a man. The NFL doesn't complete a man. I know that's hard. (laughs) The woman that God created for me completes me by God's perfect design. 1 Corinthians 11.9 says, For indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Feminists hate that verse because they do not under, they just turn it on its head. The point of this verse is it's a summary of the creation process that man was not God's gift to the world. And this concept is devastating to some of us men. The woman was God's gift to man. Adam was incomplete. He brought Eve. They were complete. And to understand that completeness is to understand and to give depth to what are the roles that God designed for a man and a woman. Now, let me just stop and talk about some parenting implications so far. You thought you were coming to hear parenting. You're going to get parenting. I promise. This is really important. I would expect that there's a lot of agreement about, with everything I've just talked about. Because most of you are parents. You've been married. You get this. But I wonder if you have considered the implications of the, just the truth we've talked about so far on your parenting. You need to pass it on. Because your son will be told the exact opposite in a way that you and I never faced. It used to be culturally acceptable and even expected that you graduate from high school, you go to college, and then what do you do? You get married. That's not at all what's being taught outside of your home. You need to be passing this on. Your son should understand from a young age that he was created to participate in God's most basic design, marriage and family. Not exclusive. He can be an accountant like me. Or he can be a whatever like you. But at its core, he needs to understand that he is designed to participate in marriage and family. The training of your son should be focused on preparing him to be effective, God-honoring, and exemplary in that context. You should teach your son to believe he has choice. He does not have choices where God does not give him choices. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. 
Your son should be able to look no further than dad. This is going to get uncomfortable for dads today. I'm just going to prepare you. But he should be able to look no further than you, dad, to witness the challenges, the successes, the joys of being a biblical man in the context of marriage and family. You can talk to him about it till you're blue in the face. He needs to see it in you. Your son should know that an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. Proverbs 12.4, he should know that he who finds a wife finds what? A good thing. Proverbs 18.23, he should know that he will and should rejoice in the wife of his youth. The wife of his youth. Proverbs 5.18, dad, these are met, these three messages that an excellent wife, your wife is your crown, that you found a good thing when you found a wife. And that you rejoice in the wife of your youth. There's three messages if you miss everything else this morning. Dads, if you start saying that to your sons and living that before your sons, you are preparing them for life. It's good parenting. It's biblical. So, let's examine. Why is your son here on the earth? You need to be prepared for that question. What makes his purpose in life different than his sister? Of all the commands and the directions in Scripture, almost all of them apply to men and women. There are certain commands that apply exclusively to a boy, to a man. What are those? What are the roles uniquely and only given to men? And by implication, after we cover that, we're going to talk about what skills and character will he need to effectively fulfill those roles. That's where we're going. So let's look at the biblical roles of a man. And let me say as we jump into this and stay in Genesis because we're going to be in Genesis here for a little bit. This is not a presentation on how to raise Christian sons. If some of our session last week, I spent quite a bit of time on this, but it's important to say your goal as a parent should be based on things you can do. There are four seats up here, by the way, if anybody wants them, come on up. Um, your, your goals should be based on what you can do. You cannot accomplish the salvation of your son, can you? So we are approaching this from the standpoint of you need to produce biblical men. What I mean by that is men who live according to the design of their creator as um, expressed in the Bible. This is about producing a biblical man, not a Christian man. We pray that we produce Christian men from our home, don't we? But that's between them and the Lord. That doesn't relieve you of the responsibility to produce a biblical man. Who lives according to God's design, and the Bible makes very clear that a man who lives according to that design will live a blessed life. Don't you want that for your son? Of course So what are the three roles? The three roles are that he is to be the primary provider for himself and his family. And I'm going to show you all of this from Scripture. That he is to be the leader of his wife and home. That's right. He doesn't get to say, I'm not a leader. It's how God designed him to function. And the third is to be the protector of his wife and his home. And I'm going to go through pretty quickly and show you this from Scripture. 
Genesis 2, the purpose of Adam was defined immediately. If you look at verse 5, Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to what? Depends on your version. It might say cultivate the ground or work the ground, serve the ground. Let's just summarize it. There was, there was nobody there to work. God created Adam to what? Work. Ouch. I'm telling you, it's going to get really uncomfortable in here this morning. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. There is such a direct connection between there was nobody to work, so God created Adam. Why do you think God created Adam? To work. And in fact, in verse, down in verse 15 of Genesis 2, it says, And the Lord God took the man, put him into the Garden of Eden to what? To cultivate it and keep it. This role is pre-curse. Work is not the curse. There is one you can take home to your sons today. Work was a gift from God. It was God's perfect creation. It is what God designed man to do. And if you don't believe this, well, I think you do understand this, that how can you live a better life than knowing you are square in the center of God's will? You know how you can know you're square in the center of God's will? Work. Okay? Perfect design. Let's look at after the curse. What changed? There's sin that enters the world. We'll look at that in a minute in the first part of Genesis chapter 3. But down in verse 17, it, it says this, And to Adam he said, Because you've listened and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Let me summarize. Because you sinned, here comes the curse. Here's the consequences of that sin for Adam and for all of us. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it. What did Adam have to do before the curse to eat? Nothing. The purpose of work was simply his pleasure. Now that all changed. In toil, you will eat of it. All the days of your life, both thorns and thistles, it will grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Across the hall, Matt Palladian is doing a session on work. I'll guarantee you he's talking about this. Work is a fact of life. And work, because of the curse now, is with eating. It, the curse made one difference. The role of man did not change. Work is not the curse. The purpose of work dramatically changed. Okay? Before the curse, food was provided. After the curse, food is the result of labor. And you say, what does this have to do with being a provider? I think you get that. It's man's role to be the primary provider for himself and his family through work. Work is not the curse. The purpose of work changed that's the curse. If you do not work, the Bible says you do not what? Eat. And the Bible also says if you do not provide for yourself and your household, you are worse than what? 
an unbeliever. So that's provision. What about a leader? God designed a husband to lead his wife and his family. And if you can, you're already in Genesis 3. Go up to the beginning of Genesis 3, and we're going to read about the original sin. And we're going to play a little game. It's called Where's Adam? Okay? You ready? You didn't know you were going to play a game this morning. It's not Where's Waldo? It's Where's Adam? Now, the serpent was... Oh, and first of all, before I read this, so many people, your children will be taught authoritatively that Eve was the first one to sin. That is not true. You understand in Romans it says, through one man sin entered the world. And I understand why some people might read this and say Eve committed the first sin. But play the game with me. And I think it'll be clear. Where's Adam? Now, the serpent was more crafty in verse 1 than any the Lord God had made. And he said to who? The woman. Where's Adam? Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent. Again, where's Adam? The woman said, from the fruit of the tree of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the Woman, you surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. There is no mention of who. Where is Adam? Working. Wouldn't that... You guys are so funny. That was good. You got the first point, at least. I have a little work to do here. Where is Adam? It's in the next phrase. She gave also to her husband with her. You know where was Adam? He was right there the entire time time. And he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings, loin coverings. Where is Adam? He's on the sideline wimping out. He's abdicating his role as leader. Adam's role was to step say this conversation is going no further. He was right there. He just watched. He didn't intervene. One of the great tragedies. And it's so interesting when you drop down now in Genesis 3, um, in verse 16, God is pronouncing the curse on the woman. And he says, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. The role of a man to lead his wife and family is pre-curse. It is perfect. That is not the curse, ladies. The curse is that you will desire to take over that leadership role, just like Eve did. That's the curse. Your little boy needs to grow up 
prepared and to lead a woman. In perfection, no. But in pattern. It's established before sin entered the world. Your son will lead. He must lead. This is his role. The curse is that it will not be easy for him. He must and will work at it. And you and I need to equip our sons to do that. Leadership in this context is not a school, uh, excuse me, a skill, a goal. It's not giftedness. A man doesn't get to say, I'm not gifted in leadership, therefore I'm not going to lead. Again, that's a subtle deception of Satan making men believe they have a choice where there is no choice. Leadership in the home is not a choice, men. And you need to implant that in your boys. God's design is for him to lead. A young man, leader, or if I'm a leader, that's a question that's irrelevant and it's even arrogant. That's placing yourself over the designer of the universe and saying, I know better. He just needs to do it. And you need to help him do it. The third role, we've talked about provision, leadership. Now we're going to talk about being a protector And obviously, in Genesis 3, you see that Adam, in his failure, highlights that role, that his role was to protect Eve. And he did not do that. He should be guarding, anticipating, shepherding her away. It wasn't just a failure of leadership. It was a failure of protection. And we know this because it's amplified in Ephesians chapter 5. I know you are familiar with this passage, husbands. Love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. That's protection. And that's leadership. Goes on to say, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. For what reason? So that he can provide for her, he can lead her, and he can protect her. That he can care for her the way Christ cares and protects the church. Those are the roles. Went through those fairly quickly. Now I want to get very, very practical. What does all of this have to do with parenting? If you agree together, mom and dad, that you want to raise a man, not a son, a man, a biblical man, you will agree to teach him the fear of God, wisdom, obedience, and repentance. Teach your daughters. That's common. But you will uniquely, as opposed to your daughters, want to train him and prepare him to be a provider, to be a leader, and to be a protector. This includes character, and it also includes skills. Man, I'm sure you would agree that trying to lead a wife and a family requires certain skills. A lot of skills. Some of us think, wouldn't it have been nice if I could have been prepped for this before I got married, right? That's the point of this session. How do you prepare um, your sons for what's coming? So I'm going to go through a couple, what I call, disciplines of a biblical man. I'm going to go through six, if, if we have time. I have as many as nine or ten that I could go through. It could be 16. There is no magic to the six. Time um, limits us to. 
And the point here, parents, is I'm not telling you what to do. I'm trying to turn your thinking on. I want you to consider that if this is what I want to produce, what are the disciplines I should start now building into my son or sons? So that by the time they leave my home, these disciplines are evident and present in their life. Again, not in perfection, but in trajectory. Okay? All of these will take work. Everything I am about to propose will be openly and aggressively opposed by many forces in your son's life, not the least of which is his own heart. That's why they're called disciplines. I'm not going to talk about anything this morning that's easy. And I'm not saying this to discourage you. I'm actually going to go through these because I, most of these might even be present in your home right now. You should be encouraged by that. And the point is, excel still more. You're doing God's work. But there might be one or two of these where you're thinking, wow, I miss that. I haven't been thinking about that. And that isn't, to, again, to discourage you that you're a bad parent. We're all bad parents. Can we just start there? We're all bad parents. This is hard work, isn't it? But by God's grace, you can produce um, from your home a biblical man. All of this is worth it. And these are not comprehensive and exclusive. It'd be great if mom and dad, you go home, and in the coming weeks, come up with some of these on your own that are unique to your son. What are the areas, the unique weaknesses in my son that we can work on? Okay? Let me, let me go through these. The first one is work, the discipline of work. You cannot for yourself and your family. Now, obviously, there are exceptions to this. Um, I, I had a good friend who married a man, a strong, strapping young man who had an accident at work, and he ended up in a bed for the rest of his life. Please understand, those are exceptions, and I'm aware of those. You need to prepare your son understanding that a biblical man works. His natural bent is laziness. It takes discipline and hard work. It takes discipline to work hard and even more to love work. You see, what the Lord calls good, we need to call what? Good. That takes discipline. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 is the New Testament codification of the story in Genesis. If you don't work, you don't eat. And work is not just for the provision of his quote of 1 Timothy 5.8 about providing for himself and his family. But laziness is a direct affront to God's design for man. That we would be workers. Laziness is the natural path. If you're still in Genesis, I want to show you. God is just laid down the law, if you will. He's pronounced the curse. And if you look at the end of chapter 3, verse 23, therefore the Lord God sent Adam out from the Garden of Eden to what? There's that word again. Cultivate, to work, the ground from which he was taken. Verse 24 is amazing to me. This is how fast things changed. Before the curse, Adam would have rushed out to work because he understood it was a gift from God. It was a pleasure. It was a joy. It was perfect. It was good. Verse 24, it says, God drove the man out. Do you get that? The curse was already in play before Adam would have rushed out. But right there between verses 23 and 24, I don't know what happened. 
and or how long it was, but God had to drive him to work. Does that make you feel better about what you have to do to get your son to take the trash out? <laughs> Adam personally experienced the perfect environment of work for the pleasure of work, and instantly God had to drive him out to do that same work. Proverbs 6, 6 through 11, go to the anto slugger. This is a father talking to his son, talking about go to the lowly ant to learn a work ethic, purposeful work, effective work. And he goes on to say, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. Hard work is a discipline. Man's natural, godless bent is towards laziness, sluggishness, and recreation. Sinful man will always lean towards someone else doing the work and providing the food for them. Does it sound like the evening news? That's the culture we're in. Big time. Many in the church even see no problem with the government providing minimum income. Do you see the devastation that is, the attack that that is on God's design of if you don't work, you don't eat? Your son will be bombarded with that message, that that's acceptable. That is a direct assault on the biblical purpose and the gift of work. Proverbs 18.9 says, He who is slack in his work is brother to him who destroys. Proverbs 21, verses 24 to 26. I want you to hear this. Your son is in these verses. Either bad or good. Your son is here. Proverbs 21, 24 to 26. Proud, haughty, scoffer are his names, who acts with insolent pride. The desire of the sluggard puts him to death, for his hands refuse to work. All day long he is craving while the righteous gives and does not hold back. When I say your son is in those verses, he is. He's either a giver or he's a what? He's a taker. And the takers are lazy and it says they're proud. And he equates those who are givers with humility. Workers. Okay? First is work. Second discipline, integrity. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 15. And we are not going to do Psalm 15 justice this morning. But I want you to note this, because if you're wondering what to talk to your sons about, Psalm 15 is a great passage of Scripture to talk to your sons about. The discipline of integrity. Integrity is a consistency between convictions and behavior. It's a fidelity and a consistency that is utterly reliable. Biblical manhood demands integrity, the ability to make a promise and keep a promise, to make commitments and keep those commitments, regardless of the consequences. It's a lifelong pursuit but the seeds of integrity must be planted very early and in your home. Psalm 15, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. Verse 2 is amazing. 
It notes walking, working, talking, all as an overflow of what? The heart. Walking implies a direction, a speed, purposefulness rather than wandering. It doesn't just happen. This is a discipline. Verse 3, he does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. There is so much in that verse. If you want to disciple your son, what I want to focus on. In whose eyes the reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. This is the aspect of integrity that I want to focus on this morning. This is someone who makes promises and commitments and vows and keeps them. He's a man of his word. You can count on his words. A man who swears to his own hurt and does not change is accountable in this regard not to a pastor, not to his parents, not to his friends, The accountability is to his own what? Words. In other words, if he says it, he's bound by it. That's speaking with integrity. That's the discipline of integrity. A man of integrity fears God and makes commitments and promises. And with full commitment to fulfill that promise. When it says to his own hurt, Sometimes we learn the hard way to stop making unnecessary and flippant commitments, don't we? I remember early in my marriage, I made a commitment. I'm going to take this job, and I'm going to stay here for two years. And within six weeks, I completely regretted that. It was the longest two years of my life. At two years and one day, I gave notice. But um, that was a great example of learning the hard way. Swearing to your own hurt, I would have lost enormous credibility with my new wife if I said I didn't really mean that. I made this commitment. We made decisions. Um, that's called swearing to your own hurt. Maybe next time you think twice about making those kinds of commitments. Also, you'll see the Lord honor those commitments. And I'll, I can tell that story another time. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 4 says, when you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. Again, we could spend a lot of time on that passage. Ecclesiastes 5, I highly recommend you understand Ecclesiastes 5 and teach it to your sons. You want a son who doesn't talk about how he meant to do it or he will do it. You want to raise a man who comes from your home who just does it, even if it means missed opportunity. He doesn't say things like, oh, I made a mistake. I'm not going to do what I said I was going to do. So many divorces are due to a lack of integrity. I know I committed to you for life, but I made a mistake. That does not come out of the mouth of a man of integrity, ever. 
There are no such mistakes for a man of integrity. In fact, in Matthew 5, Christ talks about divorce and finishes that discussion quoting Old Testament law. And in verse 33, he says, You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. Verse 37, let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. That is what you're trying to produce. What's the implication? For your son to be a leader, a provider, protector in the context of family someday, he needs to have a core integrity that says, I made a promise, I keep my promises. Who understands that when he makes those vows, he's not just making those vows to his wife or to his children, he's making them to who? To God. That's why vows at a wedding, to me, are so important. I spend a lot of time on the rare occasion I do weddings. I spend time with the couple on their vows. They mean something. Or they should. Does your son believe, Proverbs 19.22, that it's, um, what is desirable in a man is his kindness, and it's better to be a poor man than a liar? There it is, boiled down. Kindness and integrity go together. I know you're picking up clues. We're going to go back through all of these here in a minute and talk about practical parenting applications. We talk about the discipline of work, the discipline of integrity. Let's talk about the discipline of courage. Courage. The essence of biblical manhood is the merging of strength and courage. This point speaks to the biblical man who demonstrates the strength and courage of his convictions, not his abilities. Leadership in the home cannot exist without firm convictions and the courage to live them. Yes. Uh, Proverbs, let me look. Yeah, 1922. You guys are listening better than I am. My head's two pages further in my notes. Courage. The discipline of courage. You know, Ann and I are involved in um, youth ministry at Grace, young people. And long before 2020, I noticed an alarming general trend in young They were afraid. They were afraid of failure. They were afraid of success. They were and are afraid of marriage. They are afraid of girls. They are afraid of having children. They're just, they were just afraid. You name it, they were frozen in place. And this is a general statement. There's obviously exceptions. And I really began to wonder, how did this happen? It was sad, and it was so foreign to me, and it still is. And it was exceedingly concerning from a church standpoint because the, that mindset is so contrary to what the Bible says. And then 2020 happened. The virus never concerned me. The panic about the virus always concerned me from day one. And the widespread adoption of baseless fear playing right into the predisposition of our culture to what? Be afraid. Now these young men were affirmed in their fear. Fear was justified. It was promoted. It was even exalted as virtuous somehow. We've moved as a culture from a balance of fear and risk. Did you all drive to church today? You balanced the fear of a car accident that might kill you and your family versus the benefit of getting to church. We all go through that calculation, right? 
well, we've moved as a culture now. Now we um, um, filter everything through a sheer terror of just getting sick. Unwittingly or unknowingly, parents have endorsed the cultural um, view that fear is acceptable and even virtuous. I'm not saying that's true at Grace Church. You're all here. I'm talking about this is the culture. This is the pool your boy is swimming in. This is the current he's get, you're going to try and help him swim against. The societal implications of this fear is going to be enormous. It already is. The fearless are mocked and derided already. The demographic with the least risk, almost no risk, young men and women, have adopted the trappings of fear more, more than any other demographic in our culture. And they, they won't let it go. Living in fear is completely unbiblical. It's a big statement. For young men to embrace fearful living, I would say, is shameful. Fear is reserved for God. Everything else is not to be feared. Why do I say that? Why should you say that? Matthew 10, 28 says, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him, capital H him, fear God, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. There is the calibration of fear. Fear God. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, in the middle of a letter to a church, it's not written to the men of the church, it's written to the men, women, boys, and girls of the church. Paul says, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Have you ever heard that verse? It's taught all the time as men, you need to be strong. And that's true. But the point of that verse is that a good, strong, healthy church has in it men who the church can look to as an example of biblical manhood. Act like the men. Be on the alert speaks of the stand firm in the faith. That's leadership. Be strong. That's protection and leadership. And act like the men. Men, that it doesn't tell us we're off the hook and everyone needs to act like us. What that tells us is we need to be men who are strong and courageous. So that the church can look at us as an example and say, I'm going to follow that man and that man and that man. In every place in Scripture where men are told to man up, and you can look in your concordance, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say man up. That's, a, that's this century. But you can translate it as be strong and courageous. And if you would, turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 31. And I'm going to skip the rocks across this. I'm going to show you a couple chapters here, again, that I think would be fantastic for your sons to know from you what these, what's being said here. Deuteronomy chapter 31. Moses, verse 1, went and spoke these words to all Israel, and he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I'm no longer able to come and go. And the Lord has said to me, you shall not cross this Jordan. I'm not going to give you a bunch of context just for the sake of time. I think you'll get the point. Verse 3, it is the Lord your God who will cross ahead of you. He will destroy those nations before you, and you will dispossess them. 
Joshua is the one who will cross ahead of you, just as the Lord has spoken. The Lord will do to them just as he did to Sion and Og and the kings of the Amorites and to their land when he destroyed them. The Lord will deliver them up before you, and you shall do to them according to all the commandments which I have commanded you. Are you getting the point of what he's saying here? The Lord's going to do it all. You, it's covered. All you need to do is follow the man I'm telling you to follow, Joshua, and obey. And God's going to do all the rest. You would expect the next verses that the people got all excited and uh, drank iced tea and ate cookies. Whatever. Nope. He goes on, verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. Isn't that a remarkable turn? The God of the universe just said, I'm going to take care of everything. I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to lead you. And yet he still says, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or tremble at them. Why? For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you. Verse 7, then Moses called to Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, be strong and courageous for you shall go with the people and the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them and you shall give it to them as an inheritance. The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. It's a really simple point I'm drawing out of a whole bunch of good stuff here. You need to teach your sons to be strong and courageous. And the basis of that strength and courage is based on what who will do. What God will do. It's not based on their skill, their ability. If you teach your sons to be strong and courageous based on their skill and ability, you're missing the point. Will they be afraid? Yes, it's the human condition. We are all afraid at times. But the call of a man is to be strong and courageous. You know, the promise is there. It says this, I will never desert you, nor will I ever abandon you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? If you want one verse to teach your sons to be strong and courageous, there it is. Hebrews 13, 5. If you want a chapter, Deuteronomy 31. And go all the way into Joshua 1. And you know what's really interesting? Joshua was, I think, 90 years old at the time. He was an accomplished war hero. He was special forces on steroids. <laughs> they still teach his methods, his battle plans in war colleges all over the world. And if you look at Joshua 1, you will see that he is told, I think it's six or seven times, be strong and courageous. You see, being afraid isn't the problem. It's allowing that for your decisions. That is the problem. Be strong and courageous. And I want to show you a great story. If you have junior high sons, they're going to love this story. 2 Samuel chapter 10, verses 9 through 14. You can read the whole chapter. We don't have time. But there's deep principles here that I want to show you. 2 Samuel chapter 10. This whole concept of being strong and courageous. It's a great illustration Verse 9, when Joab saw that the battle was set against them in the front and the rear, we're parachuting in the middle of a story. 
When it says you're set in battle, set against you in the front of the rear, it means you're what? You're surrounded. And if you're in battle and you're surrounded, you're probably also going to be what? Dead. Usually doesn't work out real well. Very dramatic scene. This is why I say junior high boys love this story. He selected from all the choice men of Israel and arrayed them against the Arameans, but the remainder of the people he placed in the hand of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the sons of Ammon. Verse 11, he said, if, if the Arameans are too strong for me, then you will help me. But if the sons of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come help you. I think you're picking the, up the picture, but let me paint it for you. They're going to fight back to back. I got these guys. You got those guys. And if you start um, hemorrhaging, if you start losing, we'll turn around and help you. If that happens to us, you're going to, you get the picture? They are in the fight for their life. Verse 12. Be strong. And let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people and for God. And, the may, and may the Lord do what is good in sight. Verse 12 is the summary of what you teach your sons. Be strong and courageous. Why? There's two reasons given. For the sake of our people. 1 Corinthians 16, act like men. For the sake of all the people that are watching you, and it may just be your wife and your children, you be strong and courageous. You do the right thing. And then the second reason he gives, for the cities of our God, for the sake of God's reputation and his glory. The world's going to tell you you shouldn't be the primary provider, leader, and protector of your home. You know that's what God designed for you. You have the strength and the courage of your convictions. You do it for the sake of the people and for the reputation of God. And that's all he needs to know. And is it always going to end up well? Not on this earth. And that's why he goes on to say, may the Lord do what's good in his sight. Folks, we might die but at least we're going to go down doing the right thing. We may die, but people will remember that in this battle, we were strong and we were courageous. So, you have the discipline of work, the discipline of integrity, courage. Number four, humility. The discipline of humility. Strength and grace combined in one person is the ultimate measure of a man. And you know that's true. They're rare. Strength and courage mixed with pride is ungodly and it's toxic. So if you're going to teach a man, a young man in your home, to live his convictions with strength and courage, if you don't match that with the discipline of humility, you have the danger of producing a proud, toxic man. You want to talk about toxic. Leader, provider, protector is the man who devotes himself in service to others 24-7. Who are the others? his wife, and his children. And there may be others outside of that, but that's what he's called to do. Your son should never forget strength and courage is based on what God will do. It's never based on his skill, his ability, his strength, his cunning. He doesn't have enough. 2 Timothy 2.1, great verse, You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. There's the ultimate summary bringing those two together, strength and grace. That's a biblical man. Strength and pride, that's not a biblical man. Strength 
Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This verse annihilates the cultural definition um, and popular view. It's just physical, it's intellectual, it's emotional. You know, the stoic man who never cries has nothing to do with what the Bible says. The self-sufficient man. True strength comes from Christ. It's undeserved, it's unmerited, it's unearned, and it's always humble because of that. 1 Peter 5, 6 tells young men to clothe themselves in humility. Some of you are dealing with sons who are really exercised about what they look like when they leave for school in the morning. Yes, but are they clothed with humility? Are they as concerned with that? Micah 6, 8, one of my favorite verses, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and what's the third one? To walk humbly with your God. Do justice. That's the convictions. That's the strength and courage. The kindness go together. That's the discipline you need to teach. Those verses say nothing about teaching your son the pursuit of wealth, accomplishments, success, women, whatever the world would say. Fifth discipline. We've talked about work, integrity, courage, humility. Let's talk about the discipline of love. That's right. The discipline of love. A young man would never believe that love is a discipline. Some of you know that. Older men, I'm going to include everybody in this room. We're all old. You're married. You have children. You know that love is a discipline. Experience tells you that, and the Bible tells us that. Focused, dedicated, pure love has an element of emotion to it, but it is not emotional. It is a decision, and it's a series of choices. It's a decision to leave self behind, to give himself up for an, to give himself up for another person for life. A man who's going to lead, provide for, and protect one woman must be trained in the discipline of love. It is apparently not natural. And when I say it's apparently not natural, that passage I read out of Ephesians 5, talking about husbands loving their wives, the command is in there three times, husbands, that we're supposed to what? Love our wife. If he had to say it three times, it apparently is not a natural reaction. Your son won't believe that. He's head over heels in love with that cute girl at school or whatever. He's just all in. How could I never... How could I ever not love that woman? Your job is to teach him long before he gets there that love is a discipline. In Ephesians 5, I read it to you um, at the beginning of that passage. Was, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What does that mean? That means to hand everything over, to deliver yourself up, utter, total commitment for life to one woman. And by the way, ladies, it's not mom. Okay. The beginning of Ephesians 5, verse 1, setting all this up, Paul says, Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. You want to know what it means to give yourself up? Look at Christ, the perfect Son of God who gave it all up to come to earth, to live a perfect life, to be murdered by his own creation for you and me. That's giving it all up. That's what it means. 
1 Corinthians 13, you've heard this read a lot. Love is patient, love is kind, it's not jealous, it doesn't brag, it, doesn't, it is not arrogant, it does not act unbecomingly. You're familiar with this whole passage, and it ends with the phrase, love never fails. Why does love never fail? Because Christ's love never fails, and that is the example for your little boy someday, that his love for his, the wife of his youth is to never fail. Integrity. Christ's love is a model for your son's love for his wife someday, and we'll talk in a few minutes about maybe how to practically teach that. Sixth discipline, real quick. Very, very important. Follows right on the heels of the discipline of love is the discipline of being a one-woman man. A one-woman man. A big man understands that other than very rare circumstances. He is called to love, lead, and protect. Love, lead, protect, and provide for one woman for his entire life. And as I already said, that's not his mom. He should be prepared for that. This truth should be the guiding light in all of his relationships with girls, women. He is a one-woman man. You teach this discipline early. When he gets to the dating years, it's a much easier um, process. Some of you think the dating years are coming in 20 years because he's 10 years old right now. It's coming a whole lot sooner than that. First Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. I know you're familiar with this passage. This is the will of God. You know, if your son ever says, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Here's a great passage. God, here's God's will. Your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. And honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called you for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. I read that to you. Hopefully you're picking up. There's a whole lot there for your son. That's 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. This is God's will for his life, his sanctification, his purity, and honor. That's chivalry, exclusivity. One woman. Okay? Now, those are some disciplines. Those are some to think about. If you want to produce a biblical man who's capable of being and equipped to be a leader, a provider, and a protector, as God designed him to be, you should consider teaching him the disciplines of work, the discipline of integrity, the discipline of courage, of humility, the discipline of love. What does love really mean? What does it look like? And then the discipline of being a one-woman man. Let me run back through those and give some application. And from this point forward, you can unplug me. This is not thus saith the Lord. What I want to do is help you process the fire hose you just got. Maybe some things to think about. Some ways to apply this. Okay? Let's talk about work. Work begins now. I don't know how old your sons are, but I say with great confidence, work begins now. 
Why wouldn't you want to teach them the joy of work, the gift of work? This puts a whole new spin on how you tell him to do his homework, his schoolwork, don't you think? This is what God called him to do, is to work. It's preparation, chores, yard work, cars, house, um, cleaning the house, whatever it may be. There is nothing that should be outside the purview of your son. You need to teach a work ethic and expect your sons to learn how to work hard. Why? Not as a punishment, but because work is a gift from God. It is a gift. It is good. It is a fact of life. His life He will never be in an era of his life where he's not required to work. There is an era like that. It's temporary. Very temporary. Work is hard, but it's purposeful. If you understand the purpose of work, that should inform your parenting of your sons. To prepare them to be workers. And by the way, be careful about using work as a punishment. A lot of parents want to punish their child part of the corrective process and say... Um, okay, because you did that, you're going to go out and mow the lawn. I'm not saying you can't ever do that. But if you do that all the time, you're leaving an imprint on his little mind that is directly contrary to God's design for work. You are teaching him that work is bad. Something to think about. You want to teach the connection between working and eating? I got to tell you, I am astounded by how many college Young, college-age young men there are out there who don't get this. Having a clear understanding between work and eating. Dads, you should be a worker. To the degree the Lord allows you to do it, you should pursue excellence in your work. This one, I remember first teaching this when I had young daughters. Uh, I needed to be careful of always grousing about work. Your kids hear that. They get that message. Work is bad. If work is a drudgery for you, your kids will learn well from you. It's an easy message because they want to know that anyway. That's what they want to believe. You're trying to go contrary to the culture, contrary to a sin nature, which is bent towards laziness. And you want to, don't lie to them, but you want to communicate to them the benefits and the joy of work. Ladies, I know... There may be a lot of circumstances in here that make this hard, but you should express appreciation for the work your husband does. Feeling exactly what God has called him to do, and because he's working so hard, there's food on the table. I'm not saying exclusively. There may be two incomes going on in the house. But for ladies, for you to make that connection when dad's not around is extremely powerful. It's a way to teach the discipline of work. How about integrity? You never want to look the other way when it comes to dishonesty, a lying tongue. You don't want to tolerate that. You want to deal aggressively with the habits of lazy speech, emotional thinking, flippant commitments. And when I say lazy speech, I'm talking about being fast and loose with the truth. You want to hold him to his word. And in dealing with the lying tongue, it was our experience um, when the kids were in about the three, four, five year old range, that's when lying became the issue. That's where you're at, and you're seeing that in your home. Don't wait. Deal with it now. 
that goes for boys and girls, but particularly a young man who you want to teach the discipline of integrity. You don't want to ignore it, and you don't want to pretend like it's not happening, and you don't want to take the perspective that we'll deal with this later. Life's too hard right now. There is not a deeper, more significant issue, particularly in a young man who you're trying to train in integrity, than the truth of what comes out of his mouth. There's a lot there we just don't have time to dig in. And by the way, Dad, keep your promises. If you tell your son you're going to take him to the store with you, take him to the store with you. Even if it's going to slow you down. Even if it becomes enormous. I I know that's a silly issue. Really, Chris, you're going to talk about taking your son to the store? I'm picking a pedantic, small issue on purpose. Your kids watch you. They know whether they can believe what you say or not. And by the way, if it's really inconvenient to take your son to the store with you because you made that promise and you don't really want to do that right now because he wants to run around Home Depot and get lost, (laughs) maybe next time you won't make that commitment. So again, this all starts with dad. Be very, very careful about not keeping promises to their mother or to them. Courage. Courage. Teach your son to have convictions. Ah, It's so unpopular these days. Everyone's supposed to be just plain vanilla, no convictions. That is contrary to the Bible. These convictions that you're building into your son should be based on truth and the wisdom of God's word, and then you teach him to live according to those convictions. Convictions without a life are just opinions, and nobody wants to hear them. Convictions with a life is integrity, and that requires strength and courage. Teach the value of appearances. This sounds a little strange at first. Remember 2 Samuel 10? Be strong and courageous for the sake of the people. There are times, and you're going to find creative ways to teach this, the essence of leadership is that others are following, others are watching, and sometimes you do the right thing only because there are people watching. It's called accountability. Lead from the front, not the back. It's appearances without hypocrisy. If it's appearances that are just appearances, we call those Pharisees. Their heart is is hard as stone, um, and they try and act differently. That won't last long. Another way to teach courage is stop protecting your little boy. If you're teaching him the fear of God, wisdom, obedience, and repentance according to the word of God, your son is going to face resistance and headwinds unlike anything you and I ever faced. I know I sound old when I say that. Probably every old person says that. Things are different. Well, they aren't really different, but it is, we live in a culture that is so contrary to the truths of God's uh, revealed word. I promise you, your son is going to face headwinds. I call it the sapling in the wind. If you've ever planted a tree, a young tree, you know you put stakes in the ground and you tie that tree to the stakes, right? Well, if you make the mistake of tying it really tightly, that tree is doomed. You tie it loosely. You let that tree bend. Trees bend. Redwood trees, super thick, super tall, they bend. And they're building strength when they do that. Because as that tree grows, when you eventually pull the stakes off, you remove the supports, 
If you don't allow it to do that in the development process, it will be top-heavy and fall over. It's an illustration of the process of don't stop protecting your little boy. Allow his strength and courage to be tested. It will fail at times. It's not the end of the world. You want to allow his character and convictions to become his own. Incubators don't produce strong and courageous men. Stop doing everything for him. And parenting out of fear stunts his growth. He learns well from parents who are parenting out of fear to be afraid. Your practical faith in the providence and the sovereignty of God will be replicated in the adult life of your son by God's grace. Humility. How do you teach humility? There's a, disting- there's a distinguishing feature in Proverbs 1, starting in verse 20. It's a great passage between the wise man and the fool. And that, that difference is that a wise man is humble. And he doesn't just um, accept a rebuke. He seeks the rebuke. He seeks the rebuke. The fool, on the other hand, is proud. He rejects the rebuke. He avoids it. He hides from it, and he rejects it. And I know I'm describing some of your sons. I'm describing all of your sons. They're either on the path to being a wise man who seeks the rebuke, and probably the first step in that is they accept the rebuke from you. Isn't that an amazing thing when they do that? Some of you haven't ever expected that. That's your goal. You want a wise son who receives a rebuke and accepts it, sees it for what it is, understands it's for his good. A proud man a young, is a young man um, who's never forced to do that, and he's a long way from ever getting to the place where he's going to seek that rebuke. So many young men have wildly generous views of themselves. And this usually comes from a home where he was spoiled, catered to, deferred to, pampered in praise, and understood that everybody's a winner. Everyone's not a winner. You know that. It's a cold, hard, cruel world. You want to prepare him for that. Let him fail. Stop training him by your parenting that he cannot and will not ever fail. You actually need to tell him you will fail. The measure of a man isn't that you're successful necessarily. It's what do you do when you do fail? That's teach opportunity. Without the risk of failure, there's no motivation for success. Keep that in mind. Love. Hebrews 13, 4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. God will judge. This is a verse which should drive the training of your sons in an age-appropriate way, by the way. Train your, underst- train your sons to have a biblical, godly view of marriage. He is going to see movies, TV. I don't care how much you shield him. He is going to be confronted with a completely different view of marriage than what God uh, presents in the Bible. You must resolve to counter the culture in your own home. Proverbs 31, 28 to 31, talks about the godly woman. We're going to talk about this next week, raising daughters. It says her children rise up and bless her, her husband, and he praises her. How do you teach the discipline of love? Dads, it's coming back on you again. Show him what that looks like. Encourage your sons to rise up, like it says in Proverbs 31, to speak up, to articulate the praise of his mother. Not flattery, but praise. 
What a great skill for him to have when he gets married someday, huh? The ability to articulate what is great about a woman. He should be learning that from you. Encourage your sons to bless her, to compliment her, to encourage her, to thank her, to pray for her. You know, it's so cute when a five-year-old prays for mommy, and somehow we let that go. Why shouldn't a 13-year-old pray for mom? Teach um, from an early age what really matters. And by the way, by doing this, you're also teaching your daughter what goal is, what it should look like. Husbands, lead by example. Praise your wife in front of your sons. They are listening. They are learning. What does love look like? Finally, a one-woman man, and I'm over time, but just real quick. A one-woman man, um, um, you want to be careful about, and this is for those of you with older sons who may be getting close to dating. We, we call dating in youth ministry sometimes divorce training. And I just throw this out here for you to think about. There are men who are so addicted to the rush of a new relationship and, and that's not love, by the way. That's the rush of a new relationship. And if that's not addressed early on, they leave the home, get married, and they don't get over that addiction. That's what um, marital infidelity and divorce are made of. Long before they get to the age of dating, they should understand the force of integrity, making commitments swearing to their own hurt. If they understand the significance that it's one woman for life, that should drive a lot of um, their decisions as it relates to how they interact with uh, members of the opposite sex. Okay? I know we've covered a lot this morning. You've hung in there. I pray it was encouraging. I think most of you, many of you are doing most of this. Be encouraged. Hopefully, you were shown some things to think about and maybe given the deeper purpose of parenting boys. And may God produce from the families represented here godly men. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarity of your word. Lord, I pray that I might not have gotten in the way of that. Holy Spirit, take your word, make application to each of the hearts here in each of the homes. And Lord, it is our prayer that you would save the children represented here and that you would produce from the homes at Grace Church godly men in a godless world who are godly men for the sake of the people and for the praise and glory of Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen.